Thank you so much, brother, for leading us this week. So appreciate it. We've been talking all week about the gospel, knowing, living, and proclaiming the gospel. And we started on Sunday morning talking about Jesus as the precious cornerstone. You can't know who we are in Christ until you know who Christ is. And so we camped there on Sunday morning. And then Sunday evening, we talked about ourselves as the, as the precious possession of God through Christ. And then we talked about the gospel and just what it means to understand the gospel, starting with God as creator, as we were just saying, and then talking about our rebellion against him, God's judgment of sin, Jesus taking that judgment on himself, rising from the dead, conquering sin and death. And then it really does boil down to quite simple a decision to either be our own gods or submit to God in his way and find eternal life and abundant life. We also then talked about our motive being God's love to his glory. And then last night we talked about this basic idea that we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I want to talk tonight just about a couple of things that we will get into our heads that will prevent us from proclaiming Christ. When we looked at who we are in Christ Sunday night, we, we said that we become this incredible people of God that he makes for himself, his own possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But we saw that the goal of that is not just to get us into this identity, but so that we will proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and in the marvelous light. There's, there's an evangelistic purpose in our identity that just doesn't end with ourselves getting all set, but ourselves becoming ministers of the gospel. And so tonight I just want to think about this, this great commission that we have in this, this passage that many of you know. Nolan, do we have? Yeah. So, so Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he promises that he'll be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so that great commission is central to our calling as Christians. And I think you could summarize the Christian life as the combining of the great commission with the great commandment, which I'm sure many of you know. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says, on, on these two commandments hangs literally all the law and prophets. That's what it all boils down to. And so the Christian life in many ways is this wedding of the great commandment to love God and love people with the great commission to make disciples. You really can't do one well without the other. And we talked a lot this week about the way that the gospel can be distorted or diluted or we're distracted from it, things that, that make it a partial gospel or even a false gospel. But tonight I want to think about what, what I would call lies that we believe that keep us from being proclaimers. We, we saw that, that, that we proclaim Christ. We don't just share. We don't just give our story. We preach we boldly proclaim Jesus. And what I want us to realize is, you know, when you think of spiritual disciplines, we rightly think of things like Bible study and prayer and, and fasting and devoting ourselves to fellowship. 
what we tend not to include in a list of spiritual disciplines is evangelism, is proclamation. But look, look what Paul says to Philemon in verse 6. He says, I, I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith. And then you expect him to say, so that the people with whom you share your faith will have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. But isn't that fascinating what he says? Be active in sharing your faith so you will have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. Our, our adoration of Christ, our devotion to Christ, our love for Jesus is tragically incomplete unless that love and devotion finds expression in worship and proclamation. And proclamation and worship is not just what we do as an expression of where our hearts are. It's what we do so we deepen these beliefs we have and these passions that we have for Christ. When you worship, you not only express where your heart is, you deepen where your heart is. So every time I hear worship leaders say, don't sing this hymn if you don't 100% believe it. Well, if I took him seriously, I wouldn't sing any hymn because I haven't fully arrived in my beliefs in anything. And so, so worship is something I devote myself to so that I deepen my beliefs that I'm expressing. Oh, I believe him. I'm, I'm betting the ranch on Jesus. But that doesn't mean the process of deepening those beliefs and developing those beliefs and maturing those beliefs is over. And worship is not only expression, it's learning, it's deepening. You know, for much of the history of the church, Christians didn't even have their own Bibles. They learned their theology, they learned their Bibles from hymnody, from liturgy, from what they sang and recited in church. And so that's why it's really important we have solid truth in what we sing, because we're learning in some ways at an incredibly deep level, because music engages the affections almost like nothing else. And so we need to be really careful what we sing. We, we just sang a song by the Gettys that Dave led us in, and there's that line of the wrath of God being satisfied in Jesus. Well, a, a large denomination in the United States wanted to use that hymn in its hymnal, and they asked the Gettys if they could buy it from them, but excluding that line. They wanted to replace with something that didn't include the wrath of God being satisfied in Jesus. That didn't fit their theology very well. And so they asked the Gettys if they could use their hymn, but, but just exclude that line. And the Gettys, thankfully, actually gave up a lot of money because when a hymnal uses one of your hymns, yeah, you, get, you get payoffs for years sometimes, decades, long after you're dead probably. So, so they took money away from their grandchildren because they wouldn't take that line out. I really appreciate that, that the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus. And so if we exclude those sorts of profoundly important theological truths, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he satisfies the wrath of God, then we're not going to learn a robust gospel. And if we don't worship and proclaim faithfully and regularly, we will not be deepening in our understanding of who Christ is. So I just want to ask, ask you all, when, when God gives you opportunities in your life to preach Christ to someone, when he opens a door in a conversation, when he gives you a relationship with someone who's clearly in your sphere of influence, and you hesitate, 
you balk at it. You, you don't follow through. And I've done this so many times. Man, I had one day where I had two colossal failures in my opportunities to, to preach Christ to someone. And it started early in the morning. I went into a diner, and I walked in with a friend. Brian Kasky was his name, my friend Brian. He was a construction worker, so we had to have breakfast really early if he was going to get to work on time. So we got to, I think, 5 a.m., and we walked in, and the hostess said, she looked at me, and she said, did you do something wrong? And I said, no, why do you ask? And she said, because people don't smile like that at 5 a.m. unless they just did something wrong. And I love characters, don't you? And I said, no, I can't think of anything. I've done things wrong. But I, I thought to say to her, that, I mean, it's clear as day, went through my mind. I think the Spirit actually put this in my mind. I, I, I thought to say, no, I can't think of anything I did wrong, but I'm a Christian, and this is a smile of a man who's been forgiven because of Jesus. I, I really thought of saying that. And you know what I said to her? <laughs> that's it that's all i said on the way out oh, oh she seated us and she said to the waitress who came over watch this one he smiles a lot on the way out we're paying the check and she says you're still smiling and again it went through my head to say ma'am i'm a forgiven man because of jesus and you're seeing a smile of a forgiven man and you know what I said? <laughs> That's it. That's all I said to her. That same day, I'm at a salad bar, and this lady looks at my plate, and she goes, oh, you're too healthy. Look at all those greens. And I said, well, you're not doing too bad yourself. You got a whole bunch of greens there, too. And, and she said, oh, well, I had my blood pressure checked and my cholesterol checked, and they were both really bad, so now I'm trying to be righteous and holy and pure. And I thought to say, well, ma'am, you're going to need a whole lot more than greens if that's what you're looking for. You're going to need Jesus. And you know what I said? Oh, yeah, that's it. That's what I said. That's what I said. Say, I mean, I could tell you lots of stories where whatever it was that was inhibiting me, sometimes it's just this statement may lead to a long conversation, and I don't have time for that. A lot of times, that's what does it. I'll give you another one. I walked into a Starbucks once after a funeral on a Saturday morning in a suit. I officiated the funeral. And, and the kid giving me my Americano says, wow, you're dressed up for a Saturday morning. And I said, yeah, I'm coming from a funeral of a really good man. And he said, well, that's what life's all about, isn't it? Being good. And I thought to say, well, actually, the reason that Jim Epperly was a good man is because he trusted Jesus. And I said, yep. <laughs> I don't know what was going through my head, but it's just amazing. You have these doors fly open. And so often, we don't walk through them. I mean, God opens up these massive doors to, to preach Christ to people, and we just don't walk through it. For me, a lot of times it is just that. I, I don't have time. I got somewhere to go. And so it makes me think, do I have enough margin in my life 
that just allows for lingering conversation if that's where a spirit-led comment goes. It's amazing. So I want to ask you, what are things that go through your mind that inhibit you from preaching Christ to people? What are things that are inhibitors to you? Things that you, you just back off because of in your mind. What do you think? Yes, not feeling like you'll do it well enough. That's such a common thing we can feel like, ah, I'm just not sure I'm, I'm gifted enough or I'm educated enough or have, have all the right answers to this person. I heard a great quote a long time ago, and it was, some people may be able to preach the gospel better than you, but you can never preach a better gospel. And if we understand the gospel, the simplicity of it we've been emphasizing this week, we don't need a fear lacking a level of expertise or training. I actually think, I've never seen research on it, but, but I would bet you among, among the most effective evangelists are new Christians. Oh, they may lack some apologetic sophistication or tact here and there, but it's amazing how when your first love is so precious to you, you talk about it, right? And so, so yeah, that's a great, great observation. What else? What other other things go through your head? Fear of rejection that someone has preached. Fear of rejection that sexual sin is certainly what often happens. Yeah, yeah. So fear of rejection, it, it could have a really negative effect on, on a relationship. It's kind of like, you know, a, a, a guy likes a, a, a young lady and he wants to ask her out, but if he asks her out and she says no, it'll make the relationship really weird from then on out, and so you don't even go there because you're afraid of the effect it'll have on the relationship. Yeah, and so we withhold the most important thing in our lives for potential awkwardness is really what it boils down to. Yeah, good observation. Other things? See ya. Ah, okay, to unpack that for us. I bet I know where you're going, yeah. Jonahism, that's great. Is that on? I don't know. Nolan, we got this mic on here. Might nope, have to turn it, yeah, there we go. Just feeling like the nation has already written every Christians off. So I kind of want them to feel the pain of that. Too. Yeah, okay, so you don't like us, huh? All right, okay, we'll see how that goes for you. Right. <laughs> yeah, good. What's that? Right. Right. Yeah. Doug. They'll just think I'm weird. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if they've run into some some Christians who are weird, right? And just say a lump you with them, right? And and there needs to be an embracing of being part of the people of God, which includes the weird uncle right and we're family right and there can be this desire to distance ourselves from the people of god instead of saying yeah christians are a mess that's why we need a savior right we're not trying to project ourselves as perfect people that defeats the whole purpose of needing a savior right so so yeah people lumping us with other people thinking we're weird yeah good what are, anything else um not thinking ahead or anticipating certain situations so we prepared to know how to what's what to share yeah so we don't prepare feel prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within us but again i'm hoping that this week we've looked at the simplicity of the gospel 
that you don't have to be a world-class apologist or philosopher to preach Christ to people. And, you know, it's incredibly freeing when you don't feel like you have to have all the answers. And you know what I have found? When someone asks me a good question I haven't thought about before, I watch people react very positively when I say, that's a really good question. I haven't thought about that before. Let me, let me think about that, do a little research to get back to you, okay? I watch them go, oh, I guess this isn't a debate that's win at all costs, even if you have to bluff, have to bluff like you have an answer when you don't. It's really freeing when you, when you can say, I don't know. That's a great question. We need to be free to, to have that kind of honesty and humility with people. It's tremendously freeing, yeah. I was just thinking that you know I'm a Christian or that, and they'll give me a hard time about it, and I'll just say, well, let's suppose I'm wrong. And uh, so I've wasted my time at church having a good time or whatever, you know. But let's say you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Are you willing to risk that? Right. And that doesn't prove you're right, but what it does do is help the person see the stakes of this discussion, right? And, and so if I devote myself to Christ and I'm wrong, how does it end up? But if you devote yourself to nothing of eternal value, where does that end up? And that's, I love what Tim Keller said years ago that I heard him say. He, he would say to people, I know you don't believe the gospel, but don't you wish it were true? And if you wish it were true, why wouldn't you do everything you could to give it the benefit of the doubt and see if it's actually true? And so I, th that sort of negotiating can be very helpful for, for certain kinds of people in particular. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I hear you, man. I hear you. What else? Yeah. Todd. I'm in a business setting and something comes up and it's just like, oh my gosh, this is going to yeah. take this in a conversation that's more important, but I know it's going to take me away from what I was originally here right. for. Right, right. Yeah, and, and you know what I have to remind myself of in those situations? The person I'm with most of the time is completely uninhibited about bringing their passions into the conversation right? Whatever it may be, the music they like, the concert they went to this weekend, what, whatever it is they're really into, sailing, you know, NASCAR, they'll bring it in and, and not be afraid of sort of diverting it from the objective of, of getting together because we're human beings. And so I love it when people do that. And I, I would hope people would give me the freedom to do the same thing with the things that are important to me. I mean, if you had a half an hour conversation with me, and it never came up that I was married. And you found out later I was. Wouldn't that be odd? <laughs> right? I, I, I've known situations with people. So I, we had a conversation about evangelism in one of my classes at Biola one time. And, and a week later, a student sent me an email. And she said, after we talked about preaching Christ to people, I went home and told my best friend of seven years about Jesus for the first time. Now, I'm really grateful she did that. But that's a bizarre friendship, is it not? Isn't that a strange way to have relationships that you're, you're putting the most important 
thing and person in your life on hold until you figure out the ideal time to talk to them about Jesus. Yeah. Tommy. Um, I think just being distracted, uh, unavailable, you know, or self-absorbed. I heard a pastor say one time that one of the sure signs of a mature or maturity in the Christian life is being available. Ah, yeah. Yeah, being available. And that takes planning. It's funny. Availability takes planning. You need to build that into your life. Yeah. Good. Be right Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I can repeat it, Art. We don't, you don't need to run around. I can repeat the question. So it could, I'm assuming it's because we want it on there. But yeah, so I can feel like, say, say it again, Gail. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Do I, do I actually care about this person? Are, are they an, a, a vital reality for me when I'm with them? And that's just a, a mindset that really values people and, and sees them with the sort of love we were talking about the other day. One more I saw. Yeah, I, I, can, I can repeat it. Hi, Kate. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes people say, you know, I'm not interested. Or, I mean, I've had I've had a few people cuss me out and get mad just at the idea that I would talk to them about Jesus. But overwhelmingly, it's like five thousand to one ratio in my life. People are generally interested, and I think we can let the potential of somebody saying, you know, get out of my face just color our perception of people and we actually can sell people short in their curiosity and, and willingness to, to hear. I think people are, are desperate to know people who have conv- convictions about things. People, people who actually believe things, even if you don't believe it, th- there's an attractiveness to someone who's clamped on to something that I think we need to appreciate. Well, let me, let me make a few suggestions of things that go through our head that keep us from preaching Christ. Here's the first one. Nolan, you with me? There we go. Your life is your witness. I think, I think we've really often bought into this idea that it's not life and words. And I hear a lot the quote that's supposed to be St. Francis of Assisi, which I don't think, I don't actually think he said this, uh, which is preach the gospel at all times. And only use words when necessary. That sounds really cool, but it's not biblical. <laughs> As this passage in Romans 10 says, Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved, but how are they to call on one in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in one whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. So you can see that clearly we want lives that give off the aroma of Christ, 
But we have to have words that back that up. I have an acquaintance who was camping on his life being his witness at work. And one day after working with this man, he, this co-worker, for five years, the co-worker came to him and said, I want you to know that last week I trusted Christ and I'm a Christian now and I want to tell you about it. And the guy said, I'm so excited. I'm a Christian too. And the guy's face fell and he said, you are? And he said, yes. And he said, why didn't you ever tell me? He said, you've been one of the reasons I didn't think I needed to be a Christian because you're such a good guy. And I figured if you could be such a good guy without Jesus, I guess I could be too. It's amazing how, how people don't know why we're the way we are, that we need to tell them. We need to help them understand that it's word and deed. It's, it's life and witness. It's got to be both all the time. Okay, the second one is you don't have the authority or the right to impose your views. Now, I think what's really important here is, one, to understand the nature of Christian faith. Christian faith cannot be imposed. You can't force someone into saving faith. The nature of faith doesn't even allow for that conception of what we do in evangelism. Now, I, I suppose perhaps people can go about it in a way where it seems like you're trying to coerce someone into it. But if you understand saving faith, God uses us as instrument as the Spirit works to preach Christ to people, and He transform them, transforms them. We can't impose it on anybody. We can't coerce anyone into saving faith. Other religions think that that's legit. Like, you convert now or we'll kill you. That's not how Christians think, right? That, because we understand saving faith. And it's very important for people to realize that we go in the authority of Jesus. The Great Commission is, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. In other words, our king confers to us the authority to go in his name. We don't go in our own authority. We go in his. And he's God, which is the ultimate authority. It's all the authority we need. So we can go boldly as ambassadors with the authority of God himself to do that. But it's very important for people to realize that we are not coming in our own authority. We don't have any own authority, uh, our own authority. We only have what Jesus gives us. And so, so there's a humility as we do this in the midst of the boldness because it's, it's authority given to us. But it's authority. And we have a calling to, to go and do this. So, um, but no, not yet, Nolan. Let me give you the cue, Nolan, before we move. Because I'm going to keep looking. All right, so this one's fascinating to me because, because we can have a timidity that thinks, you know, who am I? Who am I to tell this, this person that they should believe this? And, and that's what people can have a real problem with. Who do you think you are? Oh, it's fun. And, and this is the very postmodern way of thinking. You're more than welcome to have your own what they call local narrative, right? Your own way of explaining reality. And you're even welcome to collect some of your friends who have the same one and call it church. But don't you dare step out of line and think you have a message for people outside of you and your friends who happen to think the same way. That's way out of line for a lot of people because they'll say there's no meta-narrative. There's no overarching explanation for anything. All you've got is what you decide as an individual and what you and your friends agree on. And one postmodern thinker even says truth 
is what you and your friends decide is true. But please don't think you have anything more than truth for you. So how dare you come to anybody and tell them, tell them they should believe anything, that you've got a corner in the market of truth, do you? And here's the thing. I think initially we need to agree with people who talk that way. And we need to say to them, well, I think not only am I limited, and they'll often say in your, your cisgendered white Western American mentality, that's all you've got to operate out of, and how dare you send missionaries to China to tell people in China what they should believe. And I, I want to say to them, you know what, you're right. You're right. I, all I've got is my very limited perspective left to myself. It's all I got. I have limited intellectual capability, limited experience. I, 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 I am. I'm stuck in this little limited view of things. And you know what? As a Christian, I'm gonna, I see it even, even worse than you do. Because as a Christian, I believe in this thing called sin, which tells me not only do I have limitations, I suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I, I, I will take the truth and manipulate it for my own purposes. Mr. Postmodern, I think it's even worse than you think it is. So, if all I've got is my perspective, you're right. And it's even worse than you think it is. But I don't think all I have is my perspective. I think I have the perspective of the creator in his word. He's revealed himself to us. He's not limited. He's not sinful. He has all knowledge. He has a perspective that understands everything in all wisdom. And so I have his word. This isn't something I came up with. It's something that I've seen profoundly true, that I validated as I've walked it out in my life. But if I only have my perspective, you're absolutely right. I have no right to tell anyone what I think they should believe about anything for that matter. Let's not just stop with religion, but morality. We can't even really have a legal system, can we? Can we even tell people they shouldn't murder or rape or kill or steal? That's just your opinion, isn't it? And, and so I, I think it's so important for us to realize we have revealed truth from the creator of the universe. Now, you may not believe that's what it is, but you need to understand that that's where I'm coming from. I don't think I just have a little limited perspective. I think I have God's perspective in his word. That's not to say you agree with that, but that's where I'm coming from. I just want you to know that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 The first excellent question. First thing I would want to say is for the vast majority of human history, and even still in the world, most people think the things they believe are true for more than themselves. The, the relativist is a great minority in the history of thinking. Of, of thinking. And, and atheists actually are a very small minority of, of humanity. Most people are not only believing they have truth for everyone in an objective way, they also believe that they're conception of God is right, and they have a conception of God, and they worship. 
uh, it's been said that humans are incurably religious, as if that's something we need to be cured of. That's what Freud would say, that's what Marx would say, that religion's this great problem we need to get away from, but we can't get away from it. And a great question is, why not? Well, because we believe we were created to worship, and it's going to end up heading somewhere. And so the first thing I want to do is realize that people who are relativists are in a great minority, and no one is actually a relativist. No one lives as if truth is truly relative. And if, and if they say they really do, key their car and see how they react. Or, or punch them in the face and see how they react. And if you say, no, 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 in my local narrative, that's po- totally fine. In my opinion, that's okay to do. I know it's not for you, but I don't have a problem with it. The people I hang out with don't have a problem with it. And so you've got to let me live my truth. No, they're going to have a deep sense of righteous indignation that leads them clearly away from a kind of relativism. You know, I, I met a woman in India who was doing her, her PhD dissertation in anthropology on the Hindu practice of sati. I don't know if you know what sati is, but it's one of the most horrific practices you can imagine. And uh, do you know that in Hinduism, women don't even rate a caste? It's not like they're the low caste. They don't get one. And then the Beatles go and want to learn from Hinduism. But, but um, they don't get a caste. So in some branches of Hinduism, when a husband dies, his wife has no reason to continue to live. And they will literally, still to this day, especially in rural villages, burn her on her husband's funeral pyre. Because her life is meaningless. And this woman was studying this as an anthropologist, and I said, do you hope your research on sati helps to end sati in India? And she was appalled that I would make a moral judgment on her research and say, no. she said, no, I would never impose my Western values on, on, on Hindus and, and somehow pronounce judgment on what they think their way is right. And I said, Really? Do you think that's, that's an okay practice? She said, no, but that's my opinion. I would never impose that on anyone. It was amazing. And, and I asked her other questions like, so you study anthropology, the study of human cultures. How do you define a human, I said. And she looked at me and said, she said, what are you talking about? I said, how do you define a human? And there was a monkey running around. I said, like, what's the difference between you and a monkey? And she said, well, I don't have a tail, do I? That was a, she's a PhD student in anthropology, and that is deep, that's as deep as it got. But here was what was fascinating. She didn't know that our room in this YMCA hostel we were staying at was right next to the room she was sharing with her mother. And we got to hear her through these thin walls go off on Christian evangelicals like the guy she just met and how despicable they are in the way they talk about people and treat women and do all these, all these judgments on evangelical Christians that she wouldn't make toward Hindus who burn women on funeral pyres. See, she's not a relativist. She wants to talk like she is, but nobody really is, and I just want people to realize that. But then what I want them to realize is they have their book too. It may not be a book, but it's a source of authority. Just the idea that truth is relative is an idea they got from somewhere like postmodern thinkers and relativists. Everybody's got a source of authority. It may be a collection of different things, but everybody's got something they're basing their views on. It may be their gut, their intuition, what they think must be true, 
what they learned in their family, what they learned from a 10th grade English teacher that was really influential and cool in their life. Uh, three college professors that really brought it home to them. Everybody's getting it from somewhere. A steady diet of Oprah, whatever it is, we've all got our sources of truth. Everybody's got them. Nobody's coming up with stuff completely on their own. And so I just want people to acknowledge, where are you getting your source of authority? What is it ultimately for you? And let's really define that like I have in mine and get yours on the table and get mine on the table and then look at the explanatory power that each of them has for reality. And I will put this up against any other explanation of human experience and reality of any other source I've ever seen. The human condition, let's just take that. How do you explain the incredible goodness in every human and the incredible badness in every human? The Bible has a perfect explanation of it. The image of God and the fall. And, and it's astounding how well the Bible explains human experience, human reality, and those sorts of ways. And so that's where I want to get with someone, is, is for them to understand and acknowledge they're getting their worldview from somewhere, and they're actually having a meta-narrative, an overarching explanation for everything, a story that explains everything, even if that story is there's no story. That's a story. Excuse me, your meta-narrative is showing, is what I want to say to people when they say there isn't one. That's an overarching explanation. Yeah. That's right. And they didn't know how to because they respond, they're claiming a moral absolute. That's right. But that's yeah. the trap. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and to do all of this lovingly and kindly and and humbly, but confidently in God's word re really requires a spirit leading and wisdom that comes from him. All right, one more. And then we're just gonna open it up. I think this is an important one. Don't expect or invite saving faith. I think some of us move beyond withdrawal to engagement, but we will leave it as, this is what's true for me. This is where I found hope. But the problem with that is they could, they could say, well, for me, it's yoga. Okay, there you go. Your Savior's yoga. Mine's Jesus. Isn't that cool? We found our way. And it can be quite frustrating to give a wonderful, well-reasoned argument for the resurrection and why you think the Bible's true and all of these things. And then in our day, people will say, well, I don't believe that, but man, I'm happy for you. Good for you. Way to go. To which I will say, please, I am counting everything on Jesus and that he rose from the dead. And the Bible actually says that I'm a complete fool if he didn't really rise from the dead in the way I'm living for him. Please don't be happy for me. Argue with me. Convince me otherwise, please. And it's very ethnocentric to say arguments are a mean thing. In most of the world, you can't even buy spices in the market without arguing. It's just our, our little culture that thinks arguing isn't nice where you don't talk about religion and politics and polite company. Most of the world doesn't think that way at all. And so, so that's a really ethnocentric way to think that you should engage with people. 
But this idea that you shouldn't invite or, 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 or expect saving faith and, and, and say, well, what about you? What about you? What have you done with Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? That's usually my lead question when I talk to people. What do you think about Jesus? That cuts through the do you go to church or even are you a Christian? But tell me what you think about Jesus. Very seldom. I've never had anybody say, well, I hate Jesus. I mean, nobody, nobody talks that way, right? Everybody sort of wants a Doobie Brothers relationship. Jesus is just all right with me, right? And thanks for tracking with the Doobie Brothers. There, um, Great band, by the way. Um, but look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. We're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Let's not give people this idea that we think Jesus is just our explanation. He's our way. But, but I think it's very important to have, yes, somewhat of a confrontation where we don't give people the impression that you can sort of passively coexist with Christ. And, and for us to stay at it and not quit because people don't respond the first or second or third or tenth time, you talk to them about it. Don and I lived with a couple when I was playing football, American football in, in Europe. We lived with a couple in England, and they, were, uh, they became very good friends of ours. And we would consistently talk to Graham and Caroline about Jesus. And they were always very polite. They were very polite. Oh, lovely, they would say. And it would go nowhere. They'd say, oh, that's lovely. More tea. And that's it. That's all it would end up. And it was, we would pray for them. We really wanted our, our life. That We became friends. We lived in their home when we were living in England. And, and we saw no progress. And we left England after that football season uh, sad about the, the, all our prayer, all our efforts, all our conversations didn't seem to go anywhere. Years went by, and we heard that Caroline's father had died right before, a few months before they were going to come and visit us. They came and visited us, and they stayed with us in Connecticut, and when we were there, Caroline had a completely different posture and attitude when we would talk about Jesus. You know old-fashioned fluorescent light bulbs? Remember those? I don't think they do that anymore. But remember they used to go, and it'd come on. She was in that fluorescent, old school fluorescent light bulb phase where the lights weren't on yet, but man, were they flickering. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're looking at me like I'm weird. You remember those fluorescent light bulbs? Well, well, she was asking questions that were showing understanding. We would walk in our apartment, and, and she'd be at our bookshelf reading Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. She would be reading our Bible when we'd walk in. She was asking questions. She was showing insights. We brought her to church with us, and she was very interested. And we prayed for her. We explained the gospel as well as we could. We made it clear that you needed to trust Jesus in saving faith. But she didn't get there. I don't know how long it was, Don. Maybe a month went by after they went back to England. And after a month, we got a letter from her. And all it was... <laughs> were the words to amazing grace written out by hand. All the stanzas. And one sentence from Caroline. I finally understand. <laughs> now, my instinct in that moment was to get in a plane 
and be with her to disciple her for the next five years and say, honey, don't start with Leviticus. Let's, let's start somewhere else. And, and be the Holy Spirit for her. She grew like a weed. And there aren't great churches in England and in, in most places. She grew like a weed. It wasn't long she was teaching Sunday school. She raised both her kids to love Jesus. We're still praying for her husband, Graham. But we saw just consistency over time. Not giving up, not assuming, oh, she's heard it all. Let's just commit it to prayer and let our lives be our witness. But consistently bringing our lives and our words together. And, and Caroline, we have spiritual grandchildren that are her, her kids because of the way God used our relationship with her. It's just a beautiful thing. Okay. Bob Phillips is here. Bob Phillips was the director of Hume Lake for 120 years. <laughs> and he served here at Hume Lake for 170 years. And here he is. Bob, you are a gospel man. I know that about you. You believe in the power of the gospel unto salvation. I mean, that's as true of you as anybody I know. Would you tell us how you got to that point and the way that's affected your life? Would you, would you just tell us? I have not prepared Bob for this at all, but he probably knows John Wesley's quote, always be prepared to do three things, pray, preach, and die. So you're a gospel man, Bob. Why and how has that affected your life? How'd you get like that? Is this on, Nolan? There we go. Well, come up here, but why don't you come up here, Bob? Die. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's just do the first two for now, because <laughs> I know you're ready for the third one. Yeah, you are. You are. I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I went to uh, all the schools at that time. I went. Um, Three years, um, excuse me, I went four years to a three-year high school. I failed uh, 13 courses in high school. I don't know if that's a record, but I was trying. Uh, they said, you'll never amount to anything. And uh, anyway, I came out to California. And my brother worked at a place called Hume Lake Christian Camps at that time. It was fellowship conferences at that time. But anyway... He worked at Hume, and he told me about it, and I was working at a guest ranch in Colorado, and he said, uh, this is what I'm doing, and then the family that I was working at, the guest ranch, she passed away, and so I said, well, I'll try and come out to see my brother. So I came out here and went to Hume, and after the first summer at Hume, um, pardon me? It was when he had pet dinosaurs. <laughs> it, was, it was back in 1958 my first summer on the staff. And at the end of the first summer, I swore I'd never work at Hume Lake ever again. And we're even because they said they would never hire me again. <laughs> it's a true story. That's great. I didn't know that. I love that. And um, it's not that I would do anything illegal, but I just love to have fun. Yeah. And would get into all kinds of trouble just, it was just so much fun. <laughs> anyway, well, I went back home, finished a, a year at, my fourth year at high school, came out to California again, and worked at Hume Lake. 
and I've got a letter in my safe from Francis Warkentine says, some things need to change if you come back. <laughs> nice. And um, I did. And it was at uh, Hume she Lake. Wa uh, she was the HR department, right? She was more than that. Yeah. Right. Um, so I came back out a second summer, and uh, during that period of time, uh, there was this blonde who said, you want to go to a meeting tonight at the chapel? And since I was very spiritual and wanted to get to know her, I said, sure. And we came into a place called Memorial Chapel. And I sat back over about where that young man is in the, in the black shirt there. And uh, Ken Poor was speaking. I didn't know who he was. I was only there for the blonde. I don't remember anything he, Kenny said until he got to the end of the message. He said, I want you to go outside and uh, get alone by yourself and in a discipline of silence and ask yourself, who's running your life? Either you are or God is. Mm. Well, I went outside and sat down below this chapel, down by there before we had the wastewater plant pumper in there, and sat down by that stream. And I said, uh, well, who's running your life? Either you are a goddess. And I said, that's easy. God, God is not running it. And it's a mess. My life's a mess. And I said, God, I don't know who, what this all means. I don't know if you're up there or not. But if you're up there, I'd like you to come in and change my life because it's a mess. He did. Did you hear any bells or whistles? No. Next morning, I went to work. And the guy said, what happened to you? I said, nothing. You mean what happened to me? They said, something's different. Mm. What's different? I said, I don't know. I asked Jesus to come to my life last night. And that's where it happened. That's what happened to me. That's my story. Isn't it so cool that you got the mess of your life taken care of in a location that became a wastewater treatment place? <laughs> You didn't know that at the time. My, my first responsibilities at Hume was to get up in the morning, and I would, uh, at 8 o'clock, start hauling garbage till about 10. Uh, from 10 till noon, I'd pump the sewers. After lunch, I would haul the horse manure. And then from after the horse manure, I would then pump sewers till dinner. I can and understand why I didn't want to come back and work. I was just starting at the bottom, that's yeah. all. So, so the gospel gripped you in a way where you weren't just transformed, but you then lived your life to see it transform other people through the ministry of Hume, but also wherever you went. You went all over the world preaching Christ to people. So you believed in the power of the gospel to save not just you, but other people through your prayer and ministry mm -hmm. to them and your intentionality. Mm -hmm. How did you go from just being a forgiven child of God to a minister of the gospel who took it so seriously? I mean, it didn't come with a title. It didn't come with a job description or a degree. That, that transition from believer to minister doesn't happen some of the time. How did that happen with you? I had a roommate who went to a place called Biola College. It wasn't Fine Biola. institution. It wasn't Biola University at that time. And uh, he talked to me about going to school there. I was from Colorado. I'd never been to L.A. in my life. 
went down there, uh, started attending Biola College, and got into a place called uh, a class called Pentateuch. Whatever a Pentateuch is, I don't yeah, know. Sounds and, painful. Uh, it was painful. Yeah. And started on the first five books of the of the Bible, and hearing stories I didn't even know what in the world was going on here. Hmm. And it was um, probably my second year at Biola. A fellow by the name of Dick Hillis came. He was a missionary to China. And he said, out of Isaiah chapter 6, who would be willing to go for us? Who would stand up and be counted for Christ? And that's where I stood in the old Sutherland Hall. There's what I did. And I stood up and received Christ as my life, into my life. Uh, not my life, but to say, I'll go anywhere, do anything for the Lord. And that was the start yeah, yeah. of all of this stuff. And then came to Hume. Worked here forever since lots of years, probably 50 years on the staff in one point or another. So it's been a few years. So last question I have for you then. I just would love for anybody to ask you any questions they have. Um, you are a phenomenal example of the Protestant work ethic in that, not just diligence, but as Luther said, the milkmaid is doing the work of the Lord. And so you have this ability to connect sewage and the gospel. <laughs> and you, you have this ability to see work in a backhoe to the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. A lot of us have a hard time making that connection. We could see it okay when you're doing frontline, upfront sort of ministry. That's easy to see. But you have an ability to, as, as much as anybody I know about, to connect things that, that a lot of us have a hard time connecting to gospel work. Unpack that one for us. That's hard to unpack. Um, I started working when I was 14, driving truck and doing all kinds of stuff back in Colorado. Sometimes so I, so I have a out of the truck while it was still moving. <laughs> that heard. too. Yes. Um, but that was a start of a work ethic. Yeah. It, it was there. So I've always enjoyed working. But I think it came to the point where all of a sudden I realized that I'm here to serve. And that's what's given me the strong work ethic is I'm here to serve. I, I was a director here. Who cares? I'm here to serve and to do a job. And so if it's picking up papers or getting into the sewer and having stuff all over you from the sewer or to get, it doesn't matter. It's all part of the kingdom work. So, um, so I, it I don't know like how to answer your question. Yeah, it, so it sounds like the needs were what drove what you did. It wasn't necessarily the passion you had for it or... No, I never a had a passion assessment for sewer stuff. Right, right. <laughs> Who does, right? Yeah. But it needs to be done. So. No, I just... To serve. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Questions for Bob? No questions. We're glad you're here. Tommy. Yes.
I'm sure there's thousands like that. And I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you. You're one of my heroes. Thankful for you. Would you close us in prayer, sir? Yeah. Talk. Wow. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Todd. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be on holy ground here at Hume, where thousands upon thousands of young people and adults have come to know you as their personal Savior and Lord. And Lord, uh, looking at this wonderful privilege to be here, it also brings with it a responsibility to further your kingdom. And so, Lord, as Eric's been talking tonight, as we think about people um, in a lost and dying world, uh, it's out there. Hell is hot and time is short, and we need to be about your business. So, Lord, help us to keep uh, close accounts with you, be sensitive to your dear Holy Spirit, to be open to your leading, and not only open but obedient to that still small voice and we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for we pray it in Jesus name. Amen.